1: Earlon, I will never forget it.
0: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, Atlanta Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring lays out the vaccination plan for educators and staff and will respond to recent criticism about the time frame from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp.
0: Atlanta Public Schools Board sent me a letter demanding that teachers needed to be vaccinated when they knew dang well I couldn't do that. We didn't have the supply to do that. I had said that. It was pandemic politics at its best and now they're going to wait two or three weeks, I believe that they're doing a disservice to their teachers.
2: Superintendent Herring joins me in just a moment. But we'll begin with this. Some of you may receive a $1,400 deposit In your bank account before the weekend is over. Of course, that's after this week's American Rescue Plan was signed by President Joe Biden. And also back in town to talk about the historic measure today is Georgia Democratic Congresswoman Nakeema Williams. Representative Williams is touring the Jackson Memorial Baptist Church Vaccination Center this midday. The focus, well, to discuss getting more Georgians vaccinated. And again, this comes after the President announced his administration is ramping up vaccine production. Here's Biden from last night's address
1: all adult Americans will be eligible to get a vaccine no later than May 1. That's much earlier than expected. Let me be clear, that doesn't mean everyone's going to have that shot immediately, but it means you'll be able to get in line beginning May 1. Every adult will be eligible to get their shot. And to do this, we're going to go from a million shots a day that I promised in December, before I was sworn in, to maintaining beating our current pace of 2 million shots a day, outpacing the rest of the world.
2: Now here in Georgia, starting Monday, more people will be eligible for vaccinations and adults over the age of 55 and those with high-risk medical conditions qualify. Still, though, Georgia continues to lag behind other states in terms of COVID-19 vaccination rates. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, just yesterday, Georgia is at the bottom of the list, and that current rate is less than 30,000 doses per 100,000 Georgians. Alaska is the state currently at the top of the list, which nearly twice our vaccination rate. Now, newly confirmed COVID-19 cases and deaths have been on the decline in the past seven days in Georgia. That's based on the state's daily coronavirus dashboard. And at this hour, the number stands at 832,480 COVID-19 cases have been reported here in Georgia. Of course, this goes back to last year. And 15,784 deaths have been confirmed. In other news, another candidate and familiar name is now entering the race for Atlanta City Council President Doug Shipman. Former president and CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center, as well as the first executive director for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, has officially announced he's entering the race, and he joins a pool of candidates to replace current council president, who's now a mayoral candidate, Felicia Moore. Atlanta City Councilmember Natlin Archibong and former Atlanta Public Schools Board Chair Courtney English have also said they're going to run for city council president. It's all coming together, isn't it? And finally, tonight's ACC tournament semifinal game between Virginia and Georgia Tech will not take place at all. ACC officials made this, the announcement this morning. Why? Well, there's been at least one member of the Virginia men's basketball team or somewhere in there has tested positive for COVID-19. And the Duke Blue Devils were also victim to this. Now, in a statement, ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips said, quote, we continue to be led by our ACC medical advisory group and the protocols put in place that have allowed our teams to safely compete during the 2021 season. We will follow the lead of our medical personnel to ensure the safety, the health and safety of our programs remain the top priority, close quote. Now, what does all this mean? This means Georgia Tech is moving on to the ACC Tournament Championship game. They'll play the winner of tonight's North Carolina and Florida State game on Saturday. Good luck, Tech. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It was a debate that had various opinions. Should teachers have been eligible among the first wave of folks getting COVID-19 vaccinations? Why is it my teacher doing this? Why isn't this district doing that? Why are they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? Well, there's a lot of folks have a lot of opinions. Here in Georgia now, teachers are included. The announcement coming last month from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. But then earlier this week, Governor Kemp criticized APS for its vaccination plan.
0: Atlanta Public Schools Board sent me a letter demanding that teachers needed to be vaccinated when they knew dang well I couldn't do that. We didn't have the supply to do that. I had said that. It was pandemic politics at its best. And now they're going to wait two or three weeks i believe that they're doing a disservice to their teachers
2: well aps does have dates and location for the district's covid 19 vaccination for all the staff and some contractors and the events will be held at mercedes-benz stadium we'll confirm all this in just a moment joining me now to talk more about all of this is superintendent of the atlanta public schools dr lisa herring superintendent herring welcome back boy we just keep meeting like this don't we We do. We do. This (laughs) pandemic just keeps pushing us together. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, first of all?
3: I'm well. I'm well, all things considered. Thank you for asking.
2: All right. Let's begin with the vaccination plan. Let's confirm for everybody the dates, when, where, all of that.
3: Yes. And so the dates for Atlanta Public Schools mass vaccination event are scheduled for Wednesday, March 24th. Friday, March 26th, and Saturday, March 27th, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. We're going to be administering the Pfizer vaccine, and so that will be the first shot. Mm-hmm. And then the second dose will be administered on Wednesday, April 14th, uh, Friday, April 16th, and Saturday, April 17th, that same at 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. window.
2: Second and shot. and with, throughout the district is just, just educators, coaches, staff, or anybody who works within the district?
3: APS employees. And so that is an open opportunity for us to do mass vaccinations as employees uh, who work and support our schools and thus have access to children and staff.
2: Is this mandatory for educators? We have not mandated it.
3: We have not mandated it, but we are strongly encouraging it. I will be um, um, vaccinated as well. And so um, we are trying to lead by example, not mandating yet, hoping we won't have to. Um, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll be encouraging it.
2: Now, APS operates its own bus service, correct, Superintendent Harry?
3: Yes, ma'am. That's correct.
2: So does the vaccination plan include bus drivers?
3: Absolutely. Bus drivers, cafeteria staff. Again, it, you think whether it's close contact or need to be in the building, um, we have made that uh, opportunity available.
2: Does that also include contractors?
3: That's a great question. The answer is yes. it does contractors as well substitute teachers yes
2: will the district keep a database or some record of sorts of all who will receive the vaccine and those who haven't in case you need it for contract tracing
3: yes i appreciate that you've asked that our student services department because we have been planning for this um uh, will have an opportunity to um our archive who has been vaccinated through a platform that will keep us in the, in the loop. And we've also been working closely with the department of public health in that regard.
2: And with Mercedes Benz, with the Falcons, the home of the Falcons, and of course Atlanta United making this stadium available, that is a big help for the district. No doubt.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, Rose, we're talking about close to 8,000 employees um, and in our Scheduling and planning of this for the last couple of months, um, we wanted to be able to execute mass vaccination because we weren't certain exactly when we would have access to vaccines. So, once it was available, we wanted to be able to do things in such a way where we could capture as many of our employees as possible. But those are not small numbers, and we initially did a survey internally to see just how many of our employees uh, that 8,000 number mm-hmm. would be. Um, amenable for participating and getting vaccinated over 66% had expressed that they would um, have that level of interest
2: is that a percentage that's acceptable, acceptable for you would you like that number to have been higher
3: oh is we're still pushing for higher yeah. we did that we did that survey probably about 3 or 4 weeks ago if if not within the month of January or February, uh, just being anticipatory, you know, anticipating it. We're going to keep pushing. We're pushing for a a full vaccination um,
2: um, commitment,
3: but that's a work in progress. And I guess we're seeing that nationally.
2: Is there a cost to the district for vaccinating the district?
3: No, ma'am. This is this has not been at cost. There has not been cost to us uh, in that regard. And I will tell you that we are thankful for partners because we do need the assistance of manpower to help actually administer the vaccine. And so we have uh, health uh, health experts and partners who have agreed to help us in that regard. And um, we also have partners who are helping us to support the staff who will be managing the vaccine, vaccination process, whether that's with lunch or other things throughout those three days uh, in a few weeks. And then those same set of three days in uh, in April.
2: Now, on those days that are weekdays for this vaccination uh, plan, will, will APS technically not be in school or what, how will this work? Because you might have a so lot we of educators in-
3: Yep. So we were intentional around the days that we chose. Wednesday, currently right now, we recognize those as asynchronous Wednesdays. That gives a bit more flexibility, particularly for our teaching staff, the, the larger cohort. So we knew that, that Wednesday gave a great deal of flexibility there. And Saturday, obviously, sure. for for them. Fridays, we were also thoughtful about district staff who may not be into in the classroom, but that gives some level of flexibility for them to push in and cycle out.
2: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, and we're discussing the district's vaccination plan for educators and staff and anybody who works with APS. Superintendent Herring, what did you make of Governor Brian Kemp's criticism of the district's plan?
3: Yeah, I I thought that those words were somewhat unfortunate. I I recognize that he was responding to, uh, the resolution the resolution that our board submitted. I'm grateful for our board's advocacy. I think it's just important to note during that time we were, the, we were last told that the vaccines would not be available um, before April, and so the sense of urgency was tied to the advocacy. Um, that's it because we knew how important it was. We were planning because we knew how important it was. Um, Now, we also have to lift that the access to vaccines are tied to our partnerships with any county um, with the Board of Health. And so we've been in concert and in step and in communication with them from the beginning. So that was never a political play on our part. We are grateful that we did see the date come up further than when we were When we were originally told, Mm -hmm. my words were just clear. I thought it was unfortunate because clearly we don't have the luxury to do political or pandemic politics. We're worried very much about the health and well-being of our children and our and our staff, Um, and we've been planning. And so, without question, the other thing I wanted to be clear on was that none of our actions that have been executed since the very beginning of this process has ever been designed to be a disservice.
2: You did release release a statement, but. Would you like to have further conversation with the governor about this? Well,
3: I think that both the governor and any leader going through this pandemic right now um, would want to t- direct our time and attention to doing what we can to get people vaccinated to influence and, and, and be um, as uh, impactful as we can to get as many people as possible vaccinated. I think we agree on that. Mm-hmm. I think we agree on the urgency of that. I, I don't think it's more disagreement than it is agreement. And so I'm, 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 I'm greatly respectful of, of Governor Kemp. Um, and I know we're all pressured. So I just want to join him in the urgency to get our community vaccinated.
2: In other words, you're moving on. We need to. <laughs> Speaking of with more measures in place and, and more access to the vaccine, and of course, you're aware of the President Biden now signed that signing that historic measure. A part of that means schools will get some some funding. Uh, have you had a You threw your hands up and folks could see you. Was that like a church? Amen. Hands up. It was. It was. I hope it was. Yeah. Um. Have you begun to start, I guess, crafting out how you all want to, to divvy that up? There's so many needs. I know that just not APS, but all the districts need. Have you and your staff started to look at how do you want to, to divvy up this funding and, and what goes to what program and department and so forth?
3: Yeah, you know, we've been doing that from uh, the beginning of the pandemic as well, just in trying to prepare p- prepare for what we could plan and, and then just a- a- anticipate. Um, we are extraordinarily grateful of the CARES Act funding, which is the which, which are the dollars that directly impact us. Yes, we've been planning for that. This will not only be a first, second, but third iteration of funding, which allows for us to do the things that perhaps we were not originally even thinking about beyond resourcing out schools and buildings, but we're thinking about learning loss and how to support uh, mm-hmm. families and students in that regard and staff and where we might have to become even more creative and so um, yep, our team is meeting weekly on that. We have been uh, because we were given some um, reason to believe that there may be another um, iteration of funding, so we've been planning.
2: Superintendent Herring now with educators and staff uh, soon will be able to be vaccinated. Will this uh, influence your approach to summer school options? You just mentioned for those students who you know traditionally always experience summer loss, but then now You have to deal with students who might didn't even log on for virtual learning or who might have now caught up in another achievement gap. Um, What will now having educators vaccinated do to your approach for summer school options?
3: Yes, it is our uh, hope and belief that uh, we will, let me step back and say this. We will be offering summer school. It is a four-week academic recovery effort. We're calling the Summer Academic Recovery Academy. Uh, four weeks in the month of June. Uh, We've identified a cohort of students who would be eligible for participation from an academic intervention standpoint. We're also going to offer enrichment. We need teachers in order for that to uh, roll out successfully. So we've been thoughtful about looking at compensation. We are grateful that by that time, All of those who we're hoping in a high number uh, need and want access to to the vaccine will have been vaccinated, quite honestly. So that gives another layer of of, um, protection for mitigation.
2: Superintendent Heron, any idea whether in numbers, through percentage or just in population of how many students you all just just they were they weren't logging on at all throughout this time?
3: Yeah, I can tell you our login data because we've been able to monitor that. And so for those who were logging in, we averaged at about 92 to 93 mm-hmm. percent uh, of our enrolled population logging in. Um, uh, once we uh, established face-to-face as an option as well, we've been a little bit more attentive to the attendance for face-to-face mm-hmm. uh, so logging in is one piece, you know, those engagement is another. Sure. So we also had to push in to make certain that you just don't see Lisa Herring, but you can see her face and say so you don't know that she's there or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been working with pushing in to ensure that it's not just a digital login, but a an instructional engagement.
2: Something else I want to ask you about, because, you know, this is always a big deal for a lot of folks. Uh, graduation ceremonies, have y'all made a decision or you want to wait and see because folks will be vaccinated?
3: We're going to have a graduation, and it will be outdoors and we are getting ready to i mean well it's not even a getting ready. the team has already started um, the planning for that we've secured our location um, and we'll be out rolling out those dates uh for for the class of twenty twenty one They will be able to participate in a graduation
2: that's a major announcement it is so Cause somebody's grandmother's like, I need to go see my baby graduate. So here we go. You're saying that for the high schools that yes. there will be in-person graduation ceremonies, and but we'll be outside. We just don't know the lake location. Like, will it be at Piedmont Park? Have... Where, where y'all gonna be? <laughs> no, uh,
3: we uh, we've been working with uh, with uh, I believe Georgia Tech for our location, and okay. so. The specificity of that it will certainly be forthcoming, and it's okay to share that t- to date. Well, it's uh, live because we haven't. I know addressed. it's okay. I know, I know. So I say it's okay. It's okay. Um, we we know how important that is. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted to lock that in as soon as possible, um, and so my administrative team has been running the logistics by me. So I'm excited about what we'll be able to do for our scholars in a, in a space that will be uh, large enough to safely accommodate. So we knew that that was important and, you know, we, we needed to do that Mm -hmm. just as a reminder, we had graduation for the class of 2020 in November, uh, which was great, but a graduation nonetheless.
2: As we begin to wrap up and thinking back to our first conversation and again, admitting that no one knew how to handle a pandemic and also be responsible for educating thousands and thousands of students when you reflect on where where the district is now and the measures you've all had to take what are the highlights for me and then you can follow up with what has been the challenging what kept you up at night
3: yep, so the highlights have been that, much like in the past, our school system was able to rise up and during a global pandemic when we weren't certain what we could do, what we did do was tie our efforts to supporting our families and children, whether that was feeding them. Um, we continued that not just from the March when we were no longer face to face, but throughout the summer and throughout the uh, this year to now whether we were in school or not, summer feeding continued to take place. I don't wanna minimize that, that was critically important. Mm -hmm. I also, I wanna applaud our efforts to make that decision back in July to go virtual, I think it was the right decision um, because we were concerned about the ability to keep our folks safe. And then the other piece that I will say is our core business is teaching and learning and that can't do it without students and teachers. And I'm proud of Atlanta Public Schools for having to navigate difficult decisions, but doing our best at keeping them safe. and That's been important, uh, as best that we can. Uh, what was that last part? If well, I what, kept, what, what kept
2: what kept you up at night? I, yeah.
3: Any given day that you know you you are made aware that uh, that pandemic is challenging our our process more than we anticipated. The health and well being of our teachers uh, stayed up quite a bit, wondering and making certain that our decisions to move forward could be embraced. And I cannot think think I cannot think I teacher workforce and our principals enough, they're the the heroes, they're the soldiers, and right beside them would also be our school bus drivers and our uh, support staff inside of our schools, um, whether that's school nutrition or otherwise. Um, Those are the things that kept me up at night though, Rose, their wellness and the decisions that kept them safe.
2: If this is a chapter in the Dr. Lisa Herring journey as an educator and as a leader, what's the name of this chapter?
3: I like that question. (laughs) What to do when you don't know what to do.
2: There you go. Lisa, Dr. Lisa Herron is a superintendent of the Atlanta Public Schools. Superintendent Herring as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And a note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Thank you.
3: I appreciate you. Thank you, Russ.
2: Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Some of you will remember this. The year was 1961, and this would be an instant hit and a classic.
0: When the night has come, and the land is dark, and the moon is the only light we'll see.
2: Tell me that's not a great song. It's a great song. It's Benny King, Stand By Me. It's also the year a young man named Calvin enrolled at what was then called Morgan State College. Now there's more to this story. And who best to help me tell it than himself, Calvin E. Tyler Jr., he joins me. Mr. Tyler, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: You remember that song? I know you remember that song.
0: Of course I do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, were you singing that song to a favorite person?
0: Yes. Um, yes, I was. My uh, high school sweetheart,
2: And her, Hannah. And her name is what now? That's right. we're going to talk about her in just a moment. Uh, first well, of all, let's go back to 1961 for a moment. You had dreams and hopes. You were you enrolled in, in what was then Morgan State College, correct?
0: That's correct. I was taking uh, courses in business administration.
2: And something happened, Mr. Tyler. What happened? Because you couldn't, you didn't finish.
0: Yeah, I didn't, um, because um didn't have a scholarship, Uh I had to pay my own way, and Mm -hmm. uh, I just ran out of money. I was working and going to school, both at the same time, and it was a struggle. So I just had to um, drop drop, drop out and um, and and look for full time work.
2: When when you knew that you had to do that, uh, Mr. Tyler, what I can imagine that was I know that was tough for you, a tough decision. Um, did you have any idea what you wanted to do? You just wanted to find a job at the time?
0: At the time, I just wanted to find a job. That's correct. I was, you know, back then we didn't look online for jobs. We looked in the one ads in the newspaper, Mm -hmm. and I was was scouring the newspapers looking for openings. Mm -hmm. And um, an opening um, appeared for UPS, which was a new company in Baltimore at the time.
2: Yeah, you grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I want to get to UPS in just a moment, but for our listeners, uh, tell us what life was like for you and your family in Baltimore, Maryland at this time.
0: Um, it was, um, well, I I love Baltimore. It's my hometown. Uh, it, it was a struggle uh, as far as uh, trying to make ends meet and everything, but uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, Baltimore hmm. back in the 60s.
2: So you see this ad is that you see this one ad for drivers for this new company called UPS and you applied?
0: Yeah, um, what, it was a huge ad, you know, it talked about, you know, the pay and benefits and that type of thing, but what caught my eye was that um, uh, the company promoted from within and all of the management people at UPS started in entry level jobs. Hmm. And um, and um, they were allowed uh, the opportunity if if they were capable to move up into higher management. So that that's what intrigued me about going to work for UPS as a 21 year old.
2: And so you're hmm. you're driving the UPS truck now. Did they have the brown trucks back then? Because that's how Absolutely. we all. <laughs> did you have a that yes. groovy UPS uniform as well?
0: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, back then. I know the drivers today wouldn't believe it, but back then we wore a um, Eisenhower jacket, uh, military-style cap, and um, we actually had to deliver packages and everything with a bow tie on. That's how wow. dressed we were. <laughs> hey.
2: In other words, as the folks say, y'all was clean.
0: Clean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a good good description.
2: And, and let me ask you this, Mr. Tyler, because you said, you know, I'm going to drive for this company. Did you think, you know what, maybe you talked about being able to move up. Did they tell you all what those options would be and, and how to, you know, maneuver through the company?
0: No, no, not in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, um, it, you know, you, you know, you would read some of the material about the company and some of the uh, management folks, and they would have their bios and, and all of them started in entry level jobs. So, you know, it's pretty obvious that, um, that, that's, um, part of the culture of the company is to try to find talent within the company and to move them up into higher management jobs.
2: Well, let's talk about how long did did you drive the truck before you had an opportunity to move up? Two years. Wow.
0: Yeah. Uh, And, um, I was given the opportunity to come into management at age twenty three.
2: Did you tell Tina that?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, she knew everything.
2: Um she, and then from Well, the...
0: when I was a driver, I gotta tell you this, okay. when I was a driver I worked a lot of hours and, and had a lot of overtime. So uh, when I went into management initially, you know, management people are paid salaries. And there is no overtime, even though you still work a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, it appeared to Tina that um, I was moving up and I got a pay cut.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I bet you and Tina have some great stories. That's a whole other segment with you and and your lovely wife. Um, And then after that, what was the next position?
0: Um, I became... uh, Uh, I was a supervisor first, and within a year I became a manager, which meant that um, I had uh, more responsibility. And um, by 1970, um, I was um, offered an opportunity to become a division manager and move to Houston, Texas, and run the city of Houston, which Tina and I did.
2: So Mm -hmm. now, so you moved from Baltimore down to Houston, you're managing it, right. and then as you're seeing, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking, you know what, this this is? I like how I'm 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 moving in this company. Or did you think, you know what, this is this is all right? The Morgan State thing was disappointing, but this is this is okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. As uh, each move, I was making more money, so I was um, feeling pretty secure. Um, but um, at the same time, it you know it's difficult for. Uh, I think I was 26 years old with a wife and a young kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were leaving Baltimore, you know. That's our home. That's where all our family was. So that part was um, difficult to leave um, our hometown for the first time.
2: Mm, I can imagine. <clears throat> if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with philanthropist Calvin E. Tyler, Jr., retired UPS Senior Vice President of Operations And former UPS board member, I gave some of that away because now let's talk about you and becoming Senior Vice President of Operations. What year was this?
0: Um, I became Senior Vice President in 1988.
2: So you started with UPS in, I believe, 64?
0: 64, yes.
2: And then by 88, you are a VP.
0: Senior Vice President. Senior Senior
2: Vice President. Right. Right. Is it is it rude to ask how much money you were making
0: <laughs> um i was i was, let me put it this way i was very we were very comfortable <laughs> okay <laughs> um, in 1988
2: oh i understand yeah. did and you had stock options as well i imagine
0: I, exactly i um um you know part of um what attracted me to ups also once you went into management you received about 15 to 20% of your compensation was in stock in the company. And um, a lot of um, management folks um, received the same thing I did, but I think what was unusual for me in my entire career was I never sold a single share hmm. of the stock that I received as part of my compensation. So... so- so those those shares, UPS did very well. It was a growing company, and so those shares appreciated. But I never in my entire career ever sold a single share. So,
2: so you rode it all the way with the ups and the downs.
0: That's, and there weren't that many downs because mm-hmm. UPS was growing. But you're right, I, I held on to it through so all the ups and downs.
2: Let's get to the Calvin and Tina Tyler Endowed Scholarship Fund because this has been a part of something you all been doing beyond this recent announcement of, of the of a major gift, but did you it appears to me and I could be wrong, you'd always in the back of your mind, you knew you were gonna do something to, to give back to Morgan State. is that is that fair yeah, for you? i
0: I yeah, yeah, we um you know, I retired in nineteen ninety eight and um at that time we were pretty well off financially and i was still holding a lot of ups stock so i knew and we knew that we were going to try to find some way to give back and immediately uh, what we thought about even though we had left baltimore a long time ago and um we thought about our hometown and i, I wanted to try to uh, focus on helping young people who Maybe struggling financially mm. the same way we were back in nineteen sixty one and and helped them to get a college education, so I called um, Dr. Earl Richardson, who was the president of Morgan University, and asked him if he could come down to Atlanta where we were living. I'd like to take him out to dinner and meet with him and and talk about what we want to. Try to do in the city of Baltimore, hmm. and um, and and talking to Dr. Richardson that night, it became clear to me that part of Morgan State's mission is to help underprivileged, underserved, low kids from low-income families mm-hmm. to get a, a college education. I think something like ninety percent of the students that Morgan needs some type of financial assistance. Mm -hmm. So, um, the fact that we wanted to do something to help young people in Baltimore and the fact that helping young people from disadvantaged backgrounds is a part of Morgan's mission made it a perfect match. And so I worked with Dr. Richardson on developing our endowment fund. And now we started, we started small, but, um, we kept adding to it over the 20, uh, I guess the 18 years. We started in 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we may have started a $100,000 and then a few years later, a million dollars. A few years after that, $2 Um, A few years after that, $5 million. And, and now we're getting the endowment up to $20 million.
2: Wow, $20 million this year. That's going to help so many students. Philanthropy has always been
0: a part of Well, that's, that's our hope. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I want to do is uh, pressing on um, Dr. Wilson, who's the president at Morgan now, to offer as many full tuition scholarships as they can. I My goal, well, our goal, is to have young people graduate, get their degrees, and um, enter the next stage of their life without College loan debt. So mm. that's what we're trying to do.
2: And you, of all people, and your wife, know the importance of being able to not have to worry. And so, and look, college student debt—we know right now—is it, it is it's, just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something. Of, yeah. It's,
0: yes. It's, it's a real burden for a lot of young people, and um, trying to um, help as many young people as possible graduate with no debt.
2: Mr. Tyler, when you look back at your time from that first time you stepped into that UPS truck and you were driving and then on to what you've been doing in the company, what do you tell folks about perseverance and grit and, and not not giving up? Although you were disappointed, obviously, about having to drop out of Morgan State College, but there's a lesson there, too.
0: Yeah, um, you you chose the right two words perseverance is a, a huge uh, a thing that young people need to have because um, you know life is full of ups and downs and bumps in the road and um, the people that succeed in the long run are people who have perseverance and um, and, and a willingness to uh, get back up and and try harder so that's uh that's one of the things I like to tell young people to And also, uh, I I think every young person has some God-given talents, and they may be in a lot of different areas, and uh, people need to, uh, first of all, discover what their talents are, and then have a great deal of self-belief, believe in yourself. And um, I think uh, believing in yourself is what um, can can help you overcome a lot of um, obstacles.
2: Absolutely, and also, if folks want to take a lesson from you in terms of giving back now, obviously not a lot of us may have the financial means that you and Tina have, but there are so many ways to to give back well,
0: there are ways to give back, and it doesn't have to be financial. you know you can volunteer and and um you can mentor young people um there are a lot of different ways, but um and even financially, you know um, I always tell. Them, the alumni giving at um, Morgan State and other HBCUs, you can look up the numbers, but it's not where it should be. And I'm not talking about the amount of money. I'm talking about the percentage of people who graduate from HBCUs mm-hmm. who give back. It's its too low. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be $20 million. It could be $200. It could be $300. And the school would still appreciate it So,
2: uh, absolutely. Wow. Calvin E. Tyler Jr., philanthropist and retired UPS Senior Vice President of Operations, also former UPS board member. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for what you and your lovely wife, Tina, are going to be able to do for so many students at Morgan State. Shout out to Morgan State.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes. Go, Morgan State.
2: There you go. Take care.
0: All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Prior to the pandemic, we know food insecurity was already a major issue in our nation. And it's a quality of life issue that does not discriminate. Families, individuals struggling to keep food on the table and gain access to food while challenges that existed before the pandemic are now just being amplified. And according to Feeding America, child food insecurity in Georgia due to the pandemic has increased pay attention to this from 16.1% of 2018 to 22% in 2020. And so the need continues. Now, thanks to a lot of money from the federal government, we're going to talk about what this means for so many Georgians. 11.9 million dollars from the Georgia Division of of the Georgia Division of Family and Children Services. This will go to food banks in 159 Georgia counties and about 2,400 nonprofits. We're now gonna find out just exactly how this will work. Joining me now, and she's always such a great guest, from the Georgia Food Bank Association, Dana Kraft. She's Executive Director of the Georgia Food Bank Association. Dana's always welcome, good good to have you as thank, always.
1: Thank you, it's great to be with you today. It's a
2: conversation that we've had many times before, but we need to, we need to keep having it. Um, for the folks that may not be aware, just how many members are in the Georgia Food Bank Association?
1: So there are eight Feeding America food banks that serve all 159 counties in the state of Georgia, and seven of those food banks are active with the Georgia Food Bank Association. And they all eight share this grant money that is coming through the Department of Family and Children's Services. So
2: someone's saying, well, 11 point 11 million million, uh, every little bit helps, but does that begin to even... I guess uh, address th- what how much more is needed. I guess,
1: right. So the the this this these funds are targeted. Mm-hmm. They are for a a, a a program that the food banks created in order to provide supplemental nutrition for families with children who mm-hmm. are at risk of homelessness or mm-hmm. who are TANF eligible. And so in in some of the food bank regions, they're going to use the these funds for household commodities, because they've got household distribution programs. In the Southern part of the state, several of the food banks use this for weekend food for kids who uh, are um, coming in on Mondays uh, and the counselors are reporting that they're coming in hungry. And so it it provides weekend food for them to go home. So it's used in a variety of different programs. It, It essentially doubles what the food banks normally get. They normally share a, um, a $7.5 million grant mm-hmm. for this program. It purchases protein, fruits, and vegetables. Uh, you know, Rose, you know that the food banks have what they have, right? Mm-hmm. And what gets donated is what gets donated. And that's not always uh, the, all the right elements to make a meal, mm-hmm. right? And so the these foods supplement what the food banks have coming in from other sources and including USDA federal sources in order to provide a more complete meal to families with children. Um, On the scale though, I I will tell you that the the food banks in Georgia have been responding to an unrelenting 50% increase in Mm -hmm. demand. And they've done that with additional USDA commodities that have come through the Families First and the CARES Act and trade mitigation commodities that were purchased in order to sort of mitigate the the tariff issues with China. Mm -hmm. And and two of those programs uh, came came to an end uh, in in December 31st. And knowing that we were facing what we call a commodities cliff and looking at a 50% increase in demand and a 50% drop in our food supply, um, I approached Director Rollins and his deputy, John Anderson, and said, what can we do? And they, they developed this idea to provide supplemental funding for the GNAP program. So we, we knew we had an additional supply of food coming in for families with children, which is absolutely critical. Um, since then, the federal government did provide some additional USDA commodities mm-hmm. in the December Relief Act. Um, there are no USda commodities for for the food banks specifically in uh, the relief really act being debated today but there is money to help suppliers uh, who are have food stranded in the you know restaurant mm-hmm. suppliers who, who still don't have their supplies chain straightened down and so we are working with usDA to get as much of that food moving through the food bank network as possible um so i i mean i can't i can't say enough about our partnership with uh, Department of Family and Children's Services and Director Rollins Mm -hmm. and John Anderson and the governor who recognized this need and provided this supplemental funding.
2: And I want to peel back a number that you mentioned. You said at least there there was a 50% increase in demand for food, but folks should know of that, you're talking about 40% of folks who were seeking emergency food assistance for the first time. And I think that lends itself to tell you just how devastating the pandemic has been on on households in terms of folks who lost maybe lost their jobs or you know needed to stay home with the kids. When you hear that number and what do you want to stress to folks about how folks are living and trying to make it here in Georgia?
1: Well, I think it's important for people to understand that there are many families that are on the edge uh, or really not making it right mm-hmm. now, and I am paying particular attention to children because there are a lot of kids who are not in school. You know, even pre-COVID, sixty percent of kids in public school were eligible for free and reduced-price lunch. So with school and the you know, nutrition directors have been heroic in their attempts to try to do grab-and-go lunch for kids in remote learning, and you know, have a delivery put the lunches on the school buses and run the school bus route. It, it, they've just done a tremendous uh, effort to try to do it, but we are we are still seeing families that are falling through the cracks, children falling through the cracks, families that are suffering. And um, we still have National Guard on site. Um, mm. uh, since the first week of April, the food banks have had initially 150 members of the National Guard at nine warehouse locations. At this point, we still have 120 working at seven warehouse locations and about a dozen um, uh, really important pantries that are operating in the metro Atlanta area so uh, you know if you're at home and you're doing okay <laughs> that's great but uh-huh. I we we want people to understand that that people through all walks of life have been impacted by these job losses um, that child food insecurity increase number the thirty eight percent that you noted earlier you know that a lot of those um, A lot of those kids live in the metro Atlanta area Mm -hmm. uh, where restaurant closures, hotel and convention business closures have impacted uh, people who who, uh, work hourly, low wage jobs. um, And in the Savannah area where the convention and tourism business has just, you know, been impacted.
2: You know, Dana, you mentioned that kids, educators were reporting kids coming to school, indicating maybe they were hungry, they hadn't had anything to eat possibly over the weekend and I know that that is so important for food banks now to be able to help students households with students so they can have food for the weekend a lot of people may not realize that that's that that's actually been taking place but it has I remember doing a, a profile with the YMCA where they had you know Bags of food for the kids to take with them. I went in on a Friday to profile. They had bags for the kids to take home for the weekend. A lot of folks don't realize that that is something that's actually happening, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation.
1: Right. And over the last year, you know, the food banks have been partnering with the school nutrition directors in order to do household distributions at the same locations where they're, you know, doing grab and go lunch. Um, in order to help supplement what's going home with the families. Um, there have been a lot of great partnerships um, that are happening, school-based pantries mm-hmm. that have opened in order to make food available uh, to families who need it. And, you know, it would be terrible if there was a family out there who needed help, who didn't feel like that they could come and ask for a help or, or, or who were, um, who didn't want to ask for help, I mm-hmm. guess. I mean, our network is here for everyone. And those 40% of the people who've never sought help before, you know, they are having to figure out how to navigate social services for the first
4: time.
2: And that in itself can be challenging. Dana, if folks want to know more about uh, the Georgia Food Bank Association and how if there is a, a community or a household that they feel is, is eligible for this, we're going to get the information.
1: Well, uh, GeorgiaFoodBankAssociation.org has a tab where they could find the food bank that serves their area. Mm -hmm. In in WABE's um, listening area, the Atlanta Community Food Bank is the food bank that serves, and they have a great texting system Mm -hmm. where people could text um, uh, uh, to a number and get back the three closest pantries, and that information is available at their website, um, acfb.org.
2: And we'll have a link to all of those as well. Dana Kraft, the executive director for the Georgia Food Bank Association. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the work you all are doing. You're going to help so many people in Georgia who need it right now.
1: Thank you so much, Rose. Appreciate the attention that WABE has been giving to this issue for many months. Thank you.
2: Never miss Snap Judgment. I love the show. That's it for today's edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And also keep in mind, because it never fails, you all can email me, about topics you'd like to hear or maybe something you want to comment on. Y'all do it anyway, so I love it. The email is rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.